Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, and this is the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast. On the show, we talk about managing PCOS using proven strategies, ditching diets for good, and balancing hormones naturally. Let's get to it. September is PCOS Awareness Month, and today on the show, I wanted to discuss a topic that I don't think is talked about enough, and that is the mental health aspect of PCOS, specifically anxiety. Women with PCOS are three times more likely to develop anxiety, and my guest today is Celine Burley, and she's an expert on this topic. Celine not only has PCOS herself, but she is also a licensed marriage and family therapist. She is the owner of Brighter Thinking Therapy, where she provides telehealth therapy across the state of California. She is working with adults struggling with depression, anxiety, as well as those along the path of managing stressors that relate to life transitions like parenting. Celine and I talked about anxiety and she really gave us her perspective as far as what it is, how it can manifest itself in different ways with women with PCOS specifically, as well as, of course, some ways to cope and manage anxiety successfully. So without any further ado, let's bring on my guest, Celine Burley. Hey, Celine, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited for the conversation today. We have a really important topic to cover. And I wanted to bring you on because you're someone that I came across on Instagram. And I really enjoy your content and your messaging around specifically anxiety and managing anxiety for women. So I'm I'm very happy that you're here. Before we dive into talking about anxiety, can you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and what kind of work you do as far as the mental health space? Yes, of course. So I'm Celine Burley. I'm a licensed mental health therapist in California. I have my own private practice where I mostly see clients via telehealth. I specialize in anxiety. I also see a lot of women, and it's usually in that stage of getting pregnant and then pregnancy and postpartum. And I definitely relate to that population because I myself have PCOS and I also experienced some postpartum anxiety. So it's kind of been a mission of mine because I know that there is a lack of support in that community to really tailor my practice to help those women. Mm -hmm. Do you find that that part of the life cycle is the part where women are mostly diagnosed with anxiety around childbearing age, pregnancy, and the postpartum period, or it really varies? I think it varies. What's interesting is I think once we start kind of separating ourselves from our like main family system, we start kind of broadening, right? We start kind of noticing like, wait, where something might've not really popped out for you because you kind of were used to it. You're in that same environment you kind of start to learn more about yourself. So probably that transitional age of like going off to you know college or starting a new career where it kind of takes you away from your home mm-hmm. base. But I think it definitely varies. Okay. So you do see like life changes bringing on anxiety that may have been a little more dormant prior to that. Is that a trigger for yeah, a lot of people? For sure. So I think with, I mean, anxiety can come from 
combination, right? It could be hereditary. It could be a chemical imbalance. It could be just from being exposed to like severe situations that cause a lot of stress. So I think it's like over a long period of time, maybe we were able to kind of cope, maybe not in the healthy way, right? But we kind of decided, okay, like this is the norm for me. So it really didn't get the attention it needed. And I think it gets to the point that it does become overbearing, right? So anxiety is something that it's severely impacting your daily life. Because I think there's a big misconception sometimes between like just being nervous and having Mm. anxiety, right? Because I mean, of course, we're going to be a little nervous, like first day of school or the first, you know, first day of starting our new job or whatever it might be. But anxiety is that like that level of, wow, like it's on my mind all the time. I'm having physical sensations because I think sometimes we miss it because we're looking for anxiety, right? So like you don't look anxious. So I'm going to assume you're not anxious. But for some of us, it's not something that you can just see and pick up on and say, oh yeah, like that person has anxiety. Some of us really feel more of like the physical symptoms of it, which is like, hard to breathe, having like that, like kind of chest kind of area where you're just kind of like, Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm choking. Right. So I think that that's why sometimes we miss it because we don't see it and other people can't pick up on it easily. So it's kind of hard to really judge. Right. If you don't know what someone's going through. Yeah. And it's similar, I guess, to stress where a certain level of stress is normal and maybe even healthy, right? It helps us to cope. It's a natural body reaction to certain situations. But you're saying it's beyond just momentary nervousness or something that's temporary. It's something that's more chronic, right? It comes back over and over again in different situations. Yes. Like it's impacting, like now I'm having a hard time you know, going to work, or I'm not looking forward to, you know, being in public and crowds, right? Because then we have like the different types of anxiety. So I think that it's kind of important to kind of educate ourselves in that, right? Where it's like, okay, am I noticing a pattern? So typically, sometimes what I even have my clients do, right, is kind of like rate where they're at every day. So on a scale of zero to 10, you know, like how anxious did you feel? And I think that that's how you can kind of start noticing patterns if there are any. And then you can kind of really work through those things because then you're identifying like, oh, actually, I am very anxious most of the time, you know. Mm-hmm. So that kind of, I think, starts really impacting how you're functioning. So are you avoiding things? Are you things that used to be really exciting? Are you kind of dreading them now and, and not having that kind of willpower of like, oh, I can do this. I can go and kind of like almost isolating, right? Because you're so embarrassed. And I know for a lot of people... Although I think the stigma for mental health is kind of getting to the shift that place, you know, but it still has a long ways to go. So I think one of the suggestions I always say is even if it's one person that you trust to say like, Hey, I have anxiety and this is kind of why I've been, you know, checked out or this is why I haven't been, you know, hanging out. I think it really just breaks down that barrier of at least somebody knows. And at least I have that connection where I can just be honest. And I think for a lot of my clients, the way, that that really just helps them. It's such a relief. It's such a relief to be able to say, yeah, like I have anxiety. And you'd be surprised. Sometimes you might have friends or family be like, I do too. And then it's not such like this big, mysterious, like, you know, what's going on, right? It's just like kind of really breaking that down and just saying, I'm not going to let that hold me back. And I'm going to let somebody in. That's why I'm like, sometimes we 
have boundaries around that. And we don't want to share too much. But I think as long as you have like someone, if even if it's just your therapist, right, but somebody that can really be there, be there to, you know, listen mm-hmm. to really know what your experience is like. I think that can be really helpful. Okay. I think that's a really good point. Like just the lifting of the burden of talking about it and naming it and saying, listen, I have this issue that could in and of itself reduce the worry and stress around it. Right. right. And, and, right. and put someone on the path to really trying to manage it and, and, you know, address it. You mentioned anxiety types. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we have like generalized anxiety, which is kind of what you see a lot of, right? Like just the general like standard. And there is like social anxiety. There's kind of like OCD can be kind of a subtype of anxiety. But there definitely, I think there has to be a little bit of a dis- distinction as you're kind of trying to work through it so that you know exactly like what your needs are so that you're able to work with your therapist if you have one and really identify those things. So for example, I know with PCOS, anxiety is you're three times more likely to have anxiety, which is kind of a crazy statistic. I, I didn't realize that until I actually got diagnosed with PCOS. So my whole journey with PCOS was, I didn't know I had it. So I've always had really regular periods, sometimes non-existent since I was really young. And I think for the listeners that have PCOS, maybe they've had similar experience where their doctors just suggested birth control. So from a very young age, I was put on birth control, right? To to fix the problem, but it really wasn't doing that. And until I got into the stage of having babies is when I realized, right? And I think after so many years, I just never brought it up to my OB anymore because I thought Mm -hmm. like no one's going to listen. So I finally did. And I realized that I needed kind of help. So I was for my second pregnancy, I I wasn't having success. So I went to my OB, I got like an ultrasound done. And then behold, right, I had PCOS. And then all my regular periods and all the other things that kind of weren't normal to me kind of made sense why I was struggling. So luckily, I was able to be, you know, I was put on letrozole and, and then I was able to have my second baby. But I think for a lot of women, they really feel this hesitation to even ask questions because I think that bandaid of like, here's birth control happens more. Right. Uh, you already know, know the answer. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if that, if you hear that from people that you work with, but I feel like it's pretty common, unfortunately. It is common. And I think that a lot of women, you know, it really is divided into two kind of groups from what I see. Women who are diagnosed a little bit later in life, like you, you've already had a child and, you know, in the anxiety and the stress that comes with the diagnosis at that point is, you know, is significant because you already have struggled for so many years. But I also think there could be relief because finally, you know what's going on and maybe you you have some answers at that point. And then a lot of women are diagnosed early in their teens and they have no idea what it even means to have PCOS. And it sounds from, you know, their doctor, like it's all, you know, doom and gloom. Like there's, you're not gonna be able to have children. You only have one option. Like you said, the birth control. And so- they're left with this really big, dark cloud over their heads and more questions than answers. And so the anxiety builds. And so it's really interesting to think about the statistic that you said, where women with PCOS are three times more likely to have anxiety. 
And think about whether that's something that is genetically predetermined, or do you think that it's something that is related more to PCOS itself being such a condition that affects every bodily part and the symptoms and, you know, the, the fear of infertility and everything else that comes along physically with PCOS? I think what I noticed with my clients that do have PCOS, the biological impact of PCOS comes with kind of the hormonal stuff, right? That we tend to deal with, the biochemistry of it, your emotional state. Because what's interesting, right, is not everybody's PCOS looks the same or presents the same way or affects them the same way. So, and it's not, well, I don't know. There's like a debate on like if it's curable. I think it's manageable, but we don't really have like concrete facts. Like even when you kind of look at the research, but I think the emotional and the social impact of living with it, right? Like, like you mentioned, like some people deal with infertility, not everyone does, but there, there is a percentage that do. Some people deal with, you know, the weight gain and, you know, like the severe acne and all of those things. I mean, we live in a society where the way you look matters at the end of the day. And it's hard, you know, as women, we're supposed to present a certain way, but if you're struggling with all these health issues, and once again, right, it kind of goes back to, well, you look like you're fine. Like you don't look like you have anything going on, but you do. And and so I think that sometimes that's the hardest part for some of my clients is that you don't look sick, right, to others. Mm -hmm. So everyone's like, well, I don't get it. Like, I don't get what that is. So I think just kind of having the right vocabulary for yourself and having the right boundaries so that you can share what you want. And 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 that's the thing is sometimes I think we feel the pressure of like, okay, well, I, I need to share all of these things. I don't think so. I think that the way we can kind of set those boundaries, well, first of all, like, do we even have boundaries? Like, were we even raised in a home that really like cherish that like independent side of ourselves of, of saying like, this works for me or like, no, this doesn't work for me. For some of my clients, they didn't have that. They were raised in a home where you pretty much abided by your parents' rules, your parents' expectations of what you were supposed to be doing. And there really wasn't like space for your individual needs. So I typically have clients kind of write down, you know, like, what are my needs during this time? Kind of navigating right PCOS and trying to explain to others, or am I going to explain to others? So I think kind of really sitting down taking a piece of paper, writing it down and saying, okay, like these are my boundaries, you know, maybe you don't want to talk about your PCOS, you know, so maybe we just keep it really simple and we just say, I'm dealing with some health issues and Mm -hmm. some people don't even want to go that deep. That's okay. I think it's just kind of figuring out what's going to work for you. For some people, right. They kind of, they can get the broad explanation of like, you know, I'm having difficulties around X, Y, and Z. For some people you're going to have maybe closer friends and family, right? Like they might have a little more insight into what's going on. But I think it's important for that person that's that's going through this to really jot down and, and decide, okay, like what's going to work for me and what's an absolute like, nope, we're not talking about that. So I know sometimes we have pushy friends, <laughs> pushy family members that like can't take no for an answer and then they want to know all about it. I think kind of if you're boundaries are not strong yet, right? We can kind of start with like maybe an email, maybe a text, like, hey, I'd really appreciate it if maybe we didn't, you know, touch on these subjects. 
or even if you're already in, let's say, the gathering and somebody tries to bring it up, you know, very gently saying, Hey, you know, if you've already talked to them about that boundary, you can remind them right at that time, like, Hey, you know, um, remember that conversation we had? Like, I'd really appreciate it if we just didn't talk about this right now. It's, or it's not really like the time and place to talk about it. But I think it's going to be very dependent on what you're comfortable with. And I know for some people, they don't like sitting in that uncomfortableness of like having to do those things. But I think as you're navigating your PCOS and dealing with your anxiety, it's going to be really important to really determine for yourself what that's going to look like. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think finding some sort of a set of skills or or tools that you have to manage the anxiety. And like you said, it can gradually build, right? You you don't have exactly. to necessarily, because a lot of people I think are hesitant to set boundaries or be assertive with family members because it may be someone that you're very close to and they may want the best for you, but they're not sure how to communicate with you or they're not sure where that boundary is. And so if someone is maybe not ready to set boundaries or if someone thinks that there's no need for boundaries, maybe there are already you know healthy dynamics and there are boundaries, but someone still experiences anxiety. What are some other ways that they can manage it? Yeah, so definitely... Like the one thing that really pops up with like my clients with PCOS is not having great sleep can really be detrimental. I mean, in all areas, I think of like our health, but especially with anxiety. So I think having like a really good routine for bedtime. And I know, I mean, I'm guilty of it, but I really ask my clients to like at least try to stay off their phone like 30 minutes before, like working it towards increments, right? Because I think we're all just so connected all the time that it's really hard to like let go. So I always say, okay, start small. So 30 minutes is good. I usually say two hours and everyone's like, two hours, that's a long time. So you're you're more conservative. Yeah, well, I try to be nice, right? I push, I push them as we get, you know, better at managing an hour would be like ideal Two would be amazing, right? But I think that I like to set my clients up for success. And I think like, if we can aim for the 30, then like, we can start like squeezing in like 10 minutes here, like 10 more minutes, right? And then eventually not make it such a thing where it's like, I have to be on my phone all the time. And so I think just having like a really having our body know like it's time for bed. So what are some things that I like doing before bed? Okay, maybe I could have a cup of tea. Like maybe I can have a bath. I know for some of your listeners, they're probably like, I don't have time for that, right? So I think as long as you have, you make time and and you have something that, because not everyone's going to really be into having a bath before, you know, and that's not relaxing for everyone. So again, taking inventory of like, oh, what, is relaxation. How can I communicate to my body that it's time to kind of like power down? And then another thing, obviously like movement, getting outside, having a balanced diet. And I don't mean like, you know, like the the diets that I think a lot of women are exposed to all the time. I mean, like really looking into what's good for your body. And I think that's one of the things that I've kind of had to learn. And then well, and then I've also like followed you for a while. So I really get some great ideas off there. But I, I really do notice the, the difference of when I'm eating something that my body is just like, absolutely not. Like I, I can tell, like, I just, I don't feel good afterwards. I feel the fatigue. So I think really taking inventory of the things that are making you feel good, right? Because when you feel good, 
and you're moving and you're, you know, having that time for yourself, things are good, you know? And so I think just really finding those things to ease the, the anxiety. Another really good technique is obviously, I always say like the meditation, making time for my, for the listeners that are busy moms, I say at least try to, you know, get up like 10 minutes before your kids. Right. And even if it's those 10 minutes and you can do whatever it is that you want in those 10 minutes to just have that time to really just say, Oh, okay. And like really just sit with that moment of like, I'm enjoying my, you know, cup of coffee or my tea, or I'm, you know, catching up on my book that (laughs) I haven't been able to like read forever and not reaching for the phone again. Right. So there's a pattern, right? Where it's like kind of eliminating those things that we're going to probably be doing all day anyway. So why not give ourselves that time and allow our minds to rest a little bit before getting jolted into like, right? Like our daily yes. life. Yeah. I think those 10 or 15 minutes in the morning before everyone gets up or before you start your day, first of all, I think moms can fit a whole world into those 10 or 15 minutes, right? Moms oh, for are sure. so efficient with their time. But I think it's, you know, it really sets the tone for the whole day. And if you start your day, like you said, rushing out of bed and and going on your phone and getting into texts and emails and already, you know, someone has stolen your attention and you're already starting your day with some commitments and liabilities as opposed to starting it in a really calm and relaxed way where you can enter your workday or whatever it is that you're doing in a state of mind that's much more peaceful. Right. And so it doesn't take that much time. And I know sleep is sacred and 10 minutes or 15 minutes in the morning can be a lot for, especially for women who wake up early, but, you know, just having that routine, I think can make a huge difference. And I've seen it with myself and with clients. So I absolutely agree with you. How do you feel about, so you said, don't grab your phone. And I know how most people in the health space feel about social media and how toxic it can be and things like that. What's your take on it? Do you see like that as something that breeds anxiety or or contributes to it or? I mean, it does, right? So I think that's, I mean, there's a lot there, right? Like we can unpack that. (laughs) I think that sometimes depending on, you know, what you're, kind of struggling with in the moment. I think it's great that we have all this information, right? Like the tip of our fingers all at all times. But I think that that also can be kind of toxic at times because it's just, if you are familiar with like the anxiety spiral, right? Where you kind of have this thought and then it turns to another thought and then you're like, oh gosh, and now I'm worried about this. I feel like sometimes like if you're in that state of mind where you're not feeling your best and you're already having anxiety, scrolling through social media might not always be ideal. I think you can do a really good... I mean, obviously, like I love social media for like the positives and the things that it does help. So if you are going to be on it, because let's be real, most of us are, you know, I think that just being able to say, you know what, let's, let's look at the stuff that I'm kind of seeing in my feed over and over. Like, is this helpful? Does this make me feel good? Do I even like this person? Like, why am I following this account? You know, every time I see this post or this account, it kind of makes me feel a certain way. So I think there's a way of putting kind of like those boundaries, right? Again, yeah, I love boundaries if you didn't notice. (laughs) (laughs) So I think just kind of really filtering what am I watching because that really kind of feeds into whatever we're kind of dealing with at the time. But I think that can it be helpful? Of course, there's amazing things out there that you can 
really learn from and, and it can be a positive. But if you are jumping on your social media and you're consistently comparing yourself and you know, you're, you're just, you don't feel good about yourself. Yeah. Right. And you're just like, Oh man, this has been great. You know, mute those accounts, unfollow them. You know, you're allowed to clean house a little bit, right? Like who am I following? Why am I getting these types of ads? Right. There's a way to kind of make it a little bit safer, right. For our mental health and the sense of paying attention to what you're consuming. And if you're constantly coming across these like things that are maybe feeding into your anxiety, maybe it's time to you know, take a step back. Are you going to forever, you know, be able to guard every everything? No, it's social media. People are going to post what they want. But I think having a better idea of what makes you feel good is going to teach you how to have those strong boundaries online. Yeah, I totally agree. There was a time on social media where I would go on and leave feeling really depleted. And so it feeds right into what you're saying where you need to, to watch yourself how are you coming on the platform? How are you coming off of it? How are you feeling at the end of that scroll? And it's so easy to let time pass and go in the rabbit hole of scrolling. And not only is it, you know, with comparison or other things, it does, it was leaving me very depleted and empty. And then, so I was noticing that. And also it's interesting that you said there's a thought spiral that happens because it really does feed you thoughts, right? It, it almost like dictates what you're thinking based on what you're seeing or the content that you're consuming. So right. I think that's really interesting. How does that work? Can you talk a little bit more about that thought spiral? Yeah. So with anxiety, right? We usually have this negative belief. It might not be true, but it's true to us. So even like, which is interesting with social media, right? Like, where I might take something and be like, Oh my gosh, that really just made me feel a certain type of way. You might look at the same thing and be like, Oh, that's fine. No big deal. Right. And you keep scrolling and it didn't bother you one bit. So I think that with like that spiral, it's really just your kind of, you're feeling out of like control a little bit and you're kind of out of your comfort zone. So then it just starts really becoming bigger than it really is, mm -hmm. which only worsens because with anxiety, you're already constantly stressed about something. So that's definitely kind of like where you start kind of hitting that point of like, it almost feels like you're in this hole and you can't get out of it because now you've got yourself in this position, which is why, I mean, obviously like therapy is always like number one for me. But really kind of challenging those thoughts, you know, and, and, and the way that I try to work with my clients is kind of teaching them that, you know, initially, like, okay, how can we, let's say your negative belief or negative thought after you saw that, you know, the post online or on social media was like, oh my gosh, like, I'm not good enough or, you know, I don't look as good as, as that person. And I think that a lot of the times, like that negative core belief is going to sometimes take us a little bit to even realize that like we do have that negative belief about ourselves. But I think that I always try to have like that, let's challenge that, right? So if you feel like, gosh, I really suck, <laughs> like after I, you see all these things that like people are doing or like that they're achieving, right? Because I mean, comparison is, it's huge, you know, unfortunately when you're on social media. So I think kind of, you know, challenging your thoughts. So I always say, okay, like, what is that like that thought that you're having? Oh, I I suck. Like I suck as a person. <laughs> okay, so let's let's find evidence. So like, what evidence do you have to support that? And most yeah. of the time, you're not going to have a lot of <laughs> evidence, and you're going to go, oh, actually, no, uh, you know, I, I I can't really think of anything. And if you're not quite there, right, where you're not really 
you haven't worked to that space of being able to even catch those things. I think that like the, an easy one for, for a lot of people is just thinking like, would I, would I say this to my friend? Like if my friend was presenting this to me, like how would I speak to them? Because I think sometimes we are our hardest critic. Right. And, and so I think that when I flip it and then I say, okay, well, what if there was a friend you know, it's like, you would never be mean to your friend, right? You would, I mean, hopefully, and you would never say these like negative things and, and you would probably encourage them and, and you'd probably support them or try to find a way to be there for them. Right. And so I think that if you're not quite to the space where I'm like, oh, okay, like I can identify like what that negative belief is for myself. I think just kind of coming from the place of what would I say to a friend? What would I say to a family member that's, you know, struggling with this or, you know, having these thoughts about themselves. Okay. So one thing you mentioned just now is false beliefs, right? Negative beliefs that may not be true. It reminds me of a, a game my kids like to play now. It's factor opinion, right? You got to give yourself that, that um, reality check of factor opinion. But can you talk a little bit more about other myths or misconceptions around anxiety, things that we may believe are true, but are not true about anxiety? Yeah. So a few that I kind of noticed, I think right off the bat, number one is that anxiety is not a big deal and that it'll eventually go away on its own. So I think that because a lot of people have that misconception, people that are struggling with anxiety feel like, oh, you know, I should be able to get through this. It's not a big deal. So I'm just going to keep pushing through life. Right. And that's not helpful. Right. Because we know that anxiety does affect us. um, And it is something that we need to process through whether it's something that, you know, wherever it came from, right? So whether it was something that happened recently, or something that happened in our past, but I think that I hope that it starts turning to, okay, like, man, I'm really sorry that you're dealing with that. Versus like, oh, just stop worrying, right? Because I feel like right, just snap like it, right? Yeah, yeah, like, oh, but why are you so worried? Have X, Y, and Z. Like, your life is so perfect, and da da da, right? And yeah. so it's like, if you're those people that are making those types of comments, I think that it's just feeding into that place of like, we're trying to break down that mental health stigma, and by by saying those comments, I don't know. Sometimes they don't come from a bad place. I think people are just like genuinely trying to like hype you up, right? And and like get you through it. But I think it's not it's not going to be helpful because when we don't address our anxiety, our symptoms just get worse, right? And then now it's you're in the state of kind of like survival mode where you're still dealing with it, but now you're masking, which I know I, I talk a lot about like high functioning anxiety. And, you know, I think because it, it feeds into maybe what a successful person might look like, right? Like they're very detailed. They want everything perfect. They have everything done on time. So it looks pretty on the outside, but internally, these people are just like suffocating because it's, they're trying to keep up with this image, right? Because they don't want to bring that attention to themselves. Because again, anxiety for a lot of people, it's like, that's not a big deal. Just stop worrying, right? Stop stressing. So they've internalized that. And now they're trying to function and deal with the anxiety by masking it. And so that's only going to make it worse. So I think that that's definitely one that really pops up. And I guess, did you want me to get go into another one? Yeah, if you have one that's really common. <laughs> I think that one is so interesting. And it also, you know, and I think it connects with PCOS again, where women may think they did something to bring on PCOS or it's their fault in any type of way. And of course it's not, but there's so much stigma and shame around it. And the same with anxiety, you know, it is 
a chemical imbalance in your brain, right? There's something innate to it where, you know, yes, outside events may bring it on or trigger it or life changes or things like that. But at the end of the day, it's not someone's fault. There shouldn't be shame around it. It is extremely common. And it's usually not something that, like you said, that goes away on its own. So the sooner we address it, the sooner we really tackle it, the better someone can feel and the sooner they can heal. And so I think that one is really important. Yeah. And I think the other one I hear a lot is that diet and exercise is going to cure your anxiety, which I mean, it's absolutely helpful, but I think there's like a missing component. And of course I'm a therapist. So I'm always going to say like therapy would be like the, the perfect, right? Exercise, nutrition, and therapy. Because I mean, you can work on those things. You can get, you know, really good at managing like, you know, your exercise and kind of like your eating habits. But if you're emotionally still dealing with anxiety, like I don't know if you're going to have a whole lot of energy to want to go exercise or a whole lot of energy to really put thought into like what you're preparing for yourself. So I think that again, right, because anxiety, you don't look like you're anxious, kind of, which kind of mirrors PCOS a little bit in the sense of like, well, you don't look like you're someone that's struggling with a you know health condition. So therefore, you're fine. You're fine, right? So kind of just like brushing it off. For people that are struggling with PCOS and anxiety, it's just like, I think it's even harder, right? Because now you're kind of dealing with this thing that you present like you're well, right? But internally, like you're dealing with a whole lot of stuff. So I think just kind of not assuming because someone looks well, whatever that looks like, that they're not struggling with stuff, you know, in life and with their health. Yeah. I love that you said that because it connects back to what we talked about regarding social media, where sometimes, and I come across it often on social media, probably because of the accounts that I follow, there is this sense of if your yoga flow didn't fix your depression, there's something wrong with you, right? Or like if you Mm -hmm. didn't heal something naturally, well, you didn't try hard enough or you you didn't do it right. And it's so toxic because like you said, diet and exercise help, but there comes a point where you need additional help. And there's absolutely no shame in that. And it's, you know, not making you any less worthy or, or, you know, feeling like you're not enough if you couldn't fix something naturally, especially something on the mental health level. So of course, I'm a proponent for a healthy lifestyle and diet and exercise and all of the things. But sometimes that's not enough. Many times it's not enough. And if someone's had an issue for many, many years and they're not able to manage it in that way, they should absolutely seek help. They should absolutely go to the next step. Not abandoning those other things, but you know, all these things can live together and can coexist perfectly, yeah. right? It's not like absolutely. medication or natural. You could do both. Yes. And I think that you touched on a really big thing, right? Is like the like that kind of taboo, like, oh, and now I'm on medication for my anxiety. And it's like, it's okay, right? And and I think that there is a lot of kind of shame around it. And I, I think for some of my clients, they feel like, oh, like I failed, right? Like I didn't do all of these other things well enough to be able to do it on my own. And the way we can kind of normalize that conversation, I think is that just because you are on medication now, it, it doesn't mean you're going to be on it forever, which is nice is, you know, kind of when you do all of the things we've talked about. And let's say you do have to take the route of medication, right? And and you talk with your doctor and you guys decide that that's kind of the best route for you. 
I think it's it's okay. Like it's okay if you if you have to take that path. I think that sometimes we we do have to do that in order to get up to ourselves to a level where you can come to therapy and you are able to take in all of you know all of the information, learn your coping skills. And I think as someone who's you know who dealt with postpartum anxiety, I don't have shame around it. Like I did have to go on medication. But I got to a place where I, I managed better, right? And I'm pretty open about my anxiety on my social media. So I do touch on that a lot. But I think just kind of normalizing that sometimes we do need that extra support. And it's okay. It's okay that sometimes yes. that's, that's our reality. You know? Yes, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about the process of therapy for someone who has never been to therapy or is maybe fearful of what it entails? Can you like briefly touch on how does therapy work? What do you do at therapy? And <laughs> you know, yeah. I've been to therapy for many years, so I'm familiar, but I want to make sure that my listeners who are not familiar know what to expect if they do pursue that. Yeah. So I love talking about this actually, because this helps kind of take the stigma away from having to seek help. So there's a lot of good directories that you can utilize. I know Therapy Den is great. Uh, Psychology Today is really great for finding kind of someone if you're using insurance or not, the state that you're in, because that's going to be important. So some of the things that I kind of try to prep someone that's kind of thinking about going into therapy, I would say, ask them if they offer a consultation, right? First, well, at least for me, I do. <laughs> so I do a free 10 minute video consultation. And oh, that's that, great. That allows us to kind of figure out like, are we a good match for each other? Have I worked with clients that are you know, whatever you're coming in with, right? Because I think that's it's not always important, but I think for things like, especially for PCOS, anxiety, it's kind of nice to have somebody that's maybe already worked with that population. But I think ultimately it's nice to make that connection because you're not going to like your first therapist all the time. <laughs> like sometimes it's going to take a couple. And I think that I would encourage to not give up. Like if you feel like, oh, like I've tried a few and it just didn't work out. That's why I love that the bridging, like the having the consultation, because that kind of, I mean, are you going to get to know your, the therapist in you know, the 10, 15 minutes? Probably not. But I think that sometimes we have a good sense of kind of our style, what we yeah. like. And then the nice thing about therapy, I mean, depends on the therapist, how they work. For me, I'm very client centered. So I really look to see what the client's coming in with and what they want to work on. We usually have goals that you set in the beginning of therapy, like during our first session. Mm -hmm. You kind of go over all the symptoms you've been experiencing. And then, I mean, it's up to you. Like some clients I see weekly, some clients I see biweekly, some clients I've been seeing for a little bit. So they'll do like their once a month check-in. But I think it's really kind of having that information of what... So once again, right? Like always kind of reflecting back to like, what are my needs? Like, what am I looking for in a therapist? What's important to me? Have they served the population, you know, that I'm kind of within culturally, do they understand me? Because I feel like that's a huge component as well. And have they worked with trauma, you know, for some clients that are coming in to work through some of the more traumatic stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be important to know that your therapist is, is trained in that. Yeah. My first therapist fell asleep in the middle of our session. I'm not even joking. And <laughs> I emerged from that. I returned to therapy. It was hard. It was pretty traumatic. But I did return to therapy a couple of years after that. But I really feel like it's important to establish a connection with your therapist, like you said, because it takes a lot to go to therapy, to be in therapy. It could be very, you know, 
it's a big energy drain. At least that's been my experience. And so if you have to start over with someone, that's a big deal, right? So yeah, that wasn't a good experience, but I survived it and, and it's all good. But, you know, I totally agree with you. And I think it's great to have a 10, 15 minute conversation, see if you're kind of vibing together. If, if it's the same, you're on the same page as far as your personalities. I think that's enough time to tell for most people. Yeah. Um, all right. So thank you for sharing that. I want to give you the opportunity to let people know where they can find you. And then if you also have a resource or any type of kind of helpful guide or anything like that, that people can check out. I know you mentioned two websites, Psychology Today. And was it Psychology Den? Therapy Den. Therapy so Den. So it'll be a good okay. Um, for kind of directory for therapists mm-hmm. in your area. And they have actually, it's a pretty big inventory. So hopefully like your listeners will be able to find someone there. Well, I just wanted to ask, I'm sorry, yeah. about insurance coverage. Because I heard that insurance almost has to cover therapy to a certain degree. Is that correct? That like most insurances have to include some coverage or some reimbursement for mental most, health counseling? Most do. I very rarely like not experienced that. I know for some therapists, like I only take like two insurances, but I do have clients that I'm not in network. So let's say you find someone that you really like, but they're just not in network with your insurance. Sometimes you have out of network benefits and what those clients get every month is a super bill. So that's something mm-hmm. that the client would take to their insurance company and you have the reimbursement rate. I don't know what that is, but that's a way that sometimes people kind of get around that because when you get into more of like specialties, I feel like your your options kind of tend to shrink down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's kind of... And some of my clients didn't even know they had... They could use kind of out-of-network benefits. But I think for the most part, there are different companies that do like really low rates for let's say you don't have insurance currently. I know Open Path is a really good option. They have... I think I think they're like down from like 35 to like 65. If you don't... If you're kind of in that place where you're like, oh, I can't afford it. It's really... Because I know therapy can get expensive, which is another sometimes limitation to people being able to get help. Mm-hmm. But I think there's definitely options out there if if your insurance doesn't cover. And even asking the therapist, some therapist offers lighting scale, which means like they'll, depending on like what you may, they'll slide down to kind of accommodate okay. that. Okay, great. That's good to know. Is there a book or a resource that you recommend about anxiety? Oh my gosh. I'm like, there's so many. I can't think of any. (laughs) (laughs) If you do think of one, let me know. I'll put it in the show notes. If someone wants to learn more or to kind of get started with reading about anxiety. Yeah. Okay. I'll send you. I'm like, I feel like I have like a a resource (laughs) for my clients, (laughs) but I'm like never on the top. But like for PCOS specifically, I love like the PCOS Awareness Association. Mm -hmm. I feel like they have really good information out there. And I think just kind of being able to have a support group, like when you are dealing with PCOS and it's just nice to have people that you can can bounce off and and kind of you're going through the same, maybe not exactly the same, right? Because everyone's a little bit different in their PCOS, but just being able to normalize like, okay, like that, that does happen. I'm not the only one. I'm not alone in this. And they do a really good job of just kind of like presenting a lot of really great information. So I know they're like a really great resource. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, can you tell my listeners where they can find you? Yeah, so I have my Instagram, so you can find me at Tacos and Therapy. I also have my private practice website, so that is www.brightertherapy.com. 
And I offer telehealth services. So if you're anywhere in California, then we can absolutely connect and I'd be more than happy to help you out. Okay, great. So I just want to restate your Instagram handle, which is Tacos and Therapy. I mean, you gotta gotta love that. So I'll, <laughs> I'll link to that in the show notes below. I do have four rapid fire questions for you to wrap up. Are you ready? Okay, sure. Uh, the first one, I think I know the answer to, but what is your favorite food? Tacos. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What kind of tacos? Oh my gosh. That's like always Pick such a, like a debate. At the moment, I'm going to say carne asada tacos. Like street All right. tacos. All right. I can relate to that. What's <laughs> one healthy habit you feel is totally underrated? People don't time. talk about it. And I, oh, a long time. Okay. I love that. I'm all for a long time. If you weren't a therapist, what would you be? First thing that comes to mind. I would have been a interior designer. Oh, really? Yeah. Fun. Okay, great. And last one. If you could sit down for a meal of tacos, probably with any famous person, who would it be? Dead or alive? Could be anyone. Audrey Hepburn. All right. Stylish pick. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Celine. I'm really appreciative that you were here today. Thank you so much for taking the time. And yeah, absolutely. And I'll link to everything we talked about in the show notes. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.